talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk, Douglas Maurice. Sorry we didn't get you earlier this week. Here's where we are. Here's where we are. This isn't going to be quite a full one, um, but we owe you guys this, and I apologize for the delay. Um, someone, a funeral home director, <laughs> sent me a Facebook message and suggested that we bury the season. And this is not to make light of anything, um, but that we bury the season. And he invited Buckeye Talk um, to his funeral home. And I don't know if we'll be able to work that out for the midweek podcast this week, but I think we might bury the season. I think we might do that because I think it might help everybody. So I sent the text message people. Hey, it's Doug Maurice from Cleveland.com. Nathan and Steven are not here for this one. I'm late at night. I'm in my basement. Um, we've just been trying to keep up with things, catch up on things, get back to our normal lives a little bit. We'll get back to the three-person pod midweek. Um, sorry it's been eight days, but I wanted to at least get you this weekend one. And what we're going to do, we're going to talk about Sean Wade and Corey Dennis and what might be next with the defensive uh, coordinator spot. And then we're going to go through, I, fi- I finally got a chance to watch the game, and I'm going to give you um, my thoughts on the game, I think like in a, not an emotional way. Um, and I think we can get back to the emotion of this and like the, I, I asked the tech subscribers, tell me how you're feeling a week later and just reading through some of these responses, man, you guys are taking it hard. And I get that. Someone said they erased all the games from the year. Um, people are saying they can't go back and watch it. I went back and watched it. It's been a little crazy because the Browns also happened to fire their coach the day after Ohio State lost, so it's been a busy football week at Cleveland.com. So I actually did a Takes by the Lake podcast, if you guys ever listen to this. I hadn't done Takes by the Lake since like November. I did a Freddie Kitchens Takes by the Lake, but I'm late on Buckeye Talk. So what I want to do is go through like the – I wrote them all down. I thought there were eight moments. How many other? Ten moments that if any of those ten had gone a different way, Ohio State would have won. Um, but I also thought there were a couple times where Ohio State was outcoached. Um, and I thought there were some matchup things that Clemson took advantage of um, that I thought were interesting. So I wrote all that stuff down, but let's get to a little bit of the newsy stuff first. Here's what I think we're going to do ahead. Um, I would like to do the Bury the Season podcast midweek this week. And then I think maybe do like a... Offensive depth chart podcast and a defensive depth chart podcast the next two weeks and really break down each side of the ball going to next year. I think that would be fun. Um, And then figure out what else we're going to do. So maybe we'll do that. Um, Let's talk about Sean Wade. Sean Wade coming back is a big deal, obviously. He's going to play outside corner. You guys know Randy Wade. His dad's been on here. Um, I think in the end, a lot of it came down. To, uh, to draft status and the belief that Sean, Sean can really help his draft status by playing outside corner next year. So they're going to have to find a slot corner. Um, Sean's been really good at that. A lot of this is going to depend. This is linked to who the secondary coach is going to be. And there was a time when I thought, well, he's probably not coming back because why would you come back if you're not sure who the secondary coach is going to be? But maybe he has an idea on this. I don't know. People are asking if Kerry Combs is going to be the secondary coach. I don't know. I don't. I wish I did. The Titans winning in the playoffs, you know, has certainly 
not complicated that. I, I, it doesn't change. If Ohio State wants him and if he wants to come here, he's not going to not come because they want a playoff game or they're not going to bail on him because they want a playoff game. I don't know what's going to happen. But Sean Wade decided that not knowing who his coach would be, he's going to come back anyway. So I think there's a lot of uh, fiscal responsibility in that idea, which is smart. And he wasn't going to come back to do the same thing. So you can tell that guy, yeah, yeah, you can play outside corner. So they need to find a nickel corner. Um, is it the difference between like making the playoff and not? I said in text, I don't, I don't think it's that. I don't know that one guy, if he's not a quarterback, can make that difference. But the idea of you're not losing the whole secondary and you're getting one guy back is, is a huge deal. So they're going to look at Cam Brown and Seven Banks as the other outside corner. And then I think they have to find someone to play slot corner. Sean Wade didn't come to Ohio State as a slot corner. I mean, it's like you can turn somebody into that. But I think they did find over the years with as many teams that run three wide receiver sets, I I think at least lately, they like the idea of rather than kind of rotating or having everybody move around, slot corner really is a different position, just like middle linebacker and Sam linebacker and Will linebacker are different positions. Defensive end and defensive tackle are different positions. So I I think they will address that. And they've got to find someone who can play slot corner as, as well as Sean Wade played it. Because we know how important that role is, and we know how much they miss him. And I'm not sure you just plug in Amir Reap and say go. I think you've got to figure something out with Cam Brown, with Seven Banks, with Tyreek Johnson. Three really good, like young guys there, and it's you know young is they're all entering year three, right? So that's not that young anymore. Um, so you know those guys have to be ready, and they will be ready. Um, but it certainly helped to have Sean Wade back. So, you know, like it's not, it, it is a huge deal. Um, he will be one of the best corners around um, next year. Um, and and that, is, that is super important for them. So you guys already know that. I don't have any great insight to add to that, unfortunately. Corey Dennis taking over as the uh, quarterback's coach. Um, I think this is a little weird. Not a like a huge fan of it, and um, he's going to be announced next week. I mean, like it's it's going to happen. The reports are out there. He was so he was going to go to Colorado State. Now Mike Yurcich leaves it. So instead of losing both guys out of the quarterback room, now they only lose one, and they promote the guy. They basically promote the number two up to the number one. Like when they fired Zach Smith, they promoted Brian Hartline. It's similar to this, except Corey Dennis is really, really, really young. Um, and Ryan Day didn't say it about replacing Mike uh, Yersich. I know he said it about Jeff Halfley. We're going to go out and get the best cornerbacks coach, the best secondary coach, the best co-defensive coordinator in America. Um, he didn't say that about quarterback coach because they didn't do it. Like, I know he's Urban Meyer's son-in-law, but like, we can't pretend that Corey Dennis is the best quarterbacks coach in America. <clears throat> so Ryan Day... And, I, and I've said this, this is very much, this is very much like Urban Meyer hiring Zach Smith. If you take out all the Zach Smith drama, and more than drama, the Zach Smith misdeeds. If Zach Smith was just a regular dude, it's very much like this. So it's, it's Earl Bruce as the mentor. Zach Smith is his son-in-law. Excuse me. Start again, Doug. Take two. Earl Bruce is Urban Meyer's mentor. Urban Meyer hires Earl Bruce's grandson, who is Zach Smith. So it's mentor, head coach, relation. 
Now, Urban Meyer is the mentor, Ryan Day is the head coach, and Corey Dennis is the relation. He's the hire. Zach Smith, when he came to Ohio State, he at least had two years of being a full receivers coach, of running a room. He did it at Marshall for a year and at Temple for a year, and then Urban Meyer hired him. He'd been a five-year GA quality control guy at Florida before that. Corey Dennis is only a five-year GA quality control guy at Ohio State. He's never run a room. And I haven't done all the research yet, but in my head as I think about this, the only guys that leap to mind of who has ever made Ohio State their first full assistant coaching job, the only three that leap to mind are Mike Vrabel and Brian Hartline, who are NFL players and former Buckeyes, and Corey Dennis. So this is not the norm. At the very least, it's not the norm. I actually think it's not great. Yes, he knows the guys. Yes, he knows Justin Fields. Yes, it's more comfortable for Ryan Day, and Ryan Day is going to have his hands all over Justin Fields and coaching Justin Fields next year. But the guy running the room of the quarterbacks is going to be a guy in his 20s who's never been a full-time assistant coach before. That is rare at Ohio State. Everybody's got to go earn their bones. And people will bring up Nick Siciliano. Nick Siciliano, who was a terrible quarterbacks coach under Jim Trestle, was never the plan. And he at least had run rooms at lower-level football programs. He had been in charge, fully in charge of a position group. And Nick Siciliano only became the quarterbacks coach because Joe Daniels, unfortunately, got sick. I thought they could have gone and gotten a Joe Daniels. Now, if Ryan Day didn't want his new quarterbacks coach, to be a co-offensive coordinator. If he just wanted it to be a quarterbacks coach, that thins your pool, right? You're not going to go get Joe Moorhead, the former really good Penn State offensive coordinator who just got fired by Mississippi State. By the way, that's the job that Ryan Day turned down to stay at Ohio State. Ryan Day turns down Mississippi State. They say, we can't get the Ohio State offensive coordinator. Let's get the Penn State offensive coordinator. Joe Moorhead goes there and gets fired in a couple years. So if you're only doing quarterbacks coach and you're not having a coordinator title with that and you're not letting that guy be a play caller, then you're not going to get the cream of the crop, obviously. But you could get like an older guy who's been through it maybe who has been a coordinator before but is kind of now back on the way down, who would be happy to just coach, right? Now he's got to recruit too, but like Joe Daniels was perfect. Nick Siciliano was not perfect, but Joe Daniels, who was the actual Trestle plan, and Trestle, by the way, was a quarterback's guy. Joe Daniels was ideal. Perfect guy. Great resume of coach Dan Marino had been around the block and was happy to be just Ohio State's quarterback's coach and was instrumental in the recruitment of Terrell Pryor as an older coach who went out and got on the trail and helped recruit guys and help land guys. I would have liked to see Ryan Day bring in a Joe Daniels type. So he hires Corey Dennis and, and I'm just going to throw it out there that like this is not the best guy they could have got. That's just a fact. It's not an insult to Corey Dennis. He's not the best guy they could have got. Now, is he the is he the fittest fit for Ohio State? Because everybody knows him and everything. Okay, but it's a it's a risk. It's it's certainly the easy way out. It's certainly the easy way out. And if Ryan Day just wanted somebody that he trusted and knew and could get along with, and someone that Justin Fields trusted and knew and could get along with. 
like then they've hired the right guy. But I don't know that that should be their motivation for a coaching staff, especially for a position like quarterback. So I don't know. I don't love it. I don't love it. Is Justin Fields going to have a terrible year because of it next year? No, because Ryan Day is going to be all over it. And that's the other similarity with Urban. Urban hired, Urban was a receivers coach by trade, hired Zach Smith, who was young and probably, and was not the most qualified guy to be Ohio State's receivers coach in 2012. But Urban was a receivers coach. So you can take a little more of a risk at your position of expertise. But does Ryan Day need to be coaching the quarterbacks? He's the play caller. He's the head coach. And now he's going to do extra quarterback coaching with C.J. Stroud and Jack Miller coming in and balancing this backup quarterback battle behind Justin Fields and figuring out how to develop both Jack Miller and C.J. Stroud, how to figure out which one of them is more qualified to be the number two in 2020, which will give that person the leg up in 2021, how to keep both of them happy. There's going to be a lot of ego massaging going on in that quarterback's room, and it's going to be done by a guy in his 20s who's never done it before. He's not the best guy they could have got. I'm a little surprised Ryan Day went that way. It is certainly the easiest thing to do, but I, and, and this is like, it's funny, and this is part of it, maybe this is now what part of this discussion will be, because this is not emotional game season stuff, but like Ryan Day... It's not at all that like, I, I was going to say the honeymoon period is over. The honeymoon, everybody loves Ryan Day, but he lost, right? He finally lost. I don't know. I, it was nobody said a bad word about Ryan Day ever yet before. Urban Meyer had three national championship rings. I wrote stuff all the time criticizing Urban Meyer after the Iowa loss, after his hires. I, I ripped him for hiring his friends. So we were critical, and a lot of you guys agreed with criticism of Urban Meyer for hiring Greg Schiano, for hiring Bill Davis, for hiring Greg Studrawa, for hiring guys that he knew because, and we have talked about this, maybe you're sick of me talking about this, Urban Meyer, and we talked about it when, when everybody thought Ryan Day was perfect and Ryan Day's better than Urban Meyer. Everybody hires their dream team on their first staff, and then all of a sudden you go to your second level. And Urban Meyer, we said a thousand times, two years at Bowling Green, two years at Utah, he had a lot of his core guys. And then when he lost people, that's when he got a little off track at Florida. He kept Dan Mullen for a lot longer than Ryan Day kept Jeff Halfley. But when he lost Dan Mullen, then he got off track a little bit. When he lost Greg Madison at Florida, he got off track a little bit. When he lost Charlie Strong, who he inherited at Florida but trusted and liked, you start hiring not your A team. You start hiring your B team. And it's a little harder. So I think they'll make a good halfway hire. And we've said that a million guys want to come be Ohio State's co-defensive coordinator. That spot is more attractive than the Yursich spot because the responsibilities are greater. You have autonomy, autonomy on that side of the ball. Ryan Day's not looking over your shoulder. Mike Yursich was not in charge of the offense in any way. Ryan Day was. And I do think it's interesting, as critical as I was of the Greg Madison and Kevin Wilson hires, I almost that's who I that's who I want coaching the quarterbacks. I'm not so sure you couldn't have made Kevin Wilson the quarterbacks coach and hired a tight ends coach. Boy, oh boy, that would have made a lot more sense. So I don't know. No, I do know. I don't like it. I'm not gonna pretend just because he's Urban Meyer's son in law that I think it's a great hire. I, I find it very questionable. And, I, and it's, it's 
when, when I get a chance to ask Ryan Day about it, I'm going to ask him a million questions about it. It's a really important job. He's not the most qualified guy in America, and that's the guy they went to. Um, and I, I, like, I don't think like, oh, Ryan Day only hired Corey Dennis because he's Urban's son-in-law. I think he hired Corey Dennis because he knows him and he's in the building. And you start going down that road too much, um, and you find yourself in trouble. Bill Davis was in the building. And here's the other thing. And I don't mean to compare Corey Dennis. Now, listen, Corey Dennis might be great. And everybody can throw this back in my face a year from now. But we can't pretend this is the norm. At the very least, that is false, that this is normal. Guys this young with this level of experience do not become full-time assistants at Ohio State. They just don't. So this is not normal. Maybe, maybe it just so happens that Urban Meyer's son-in-law is the one exception to the rule. And by the way, there are coaches all over this sport who hire family. So Ryan Day is not hiring family. He's hiring Ryan, Urban Meyer's family. Tim Beck showed up in 2015 after Tom Herman left, and Tim Beck did not know what to do to manage that quarterback battle between JT Barrett and Cardell Jones. And as 2015 got off track and that quarterback battle was part of it, it was the fact that Tim Beck did not have a handle on it that I think was really, really affected them. He did not have a day-to-day handle on it, and it wasn't his decision because Urban Meyer was making the quarterback decisions. Where in normal situations, if you have a veteran guy who's been around for a long time that you trust, you can let that position coach say, hey, I trust my position coach. They know more than me. So maybe Corey Dennis can get them through, hey, Justin Fields really likes him. They're all good. The idea of that Corey Dennis is somehow going to manage the Jack Miller, C.J. Stroud quarterback battle and Kyle McCord coming in, maybe this works in 2020. The idea that this is how you're going to develop these three young guys you have coming in, two in the class of 2020 and one in the class of 2021, these highly rated, highly, 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 highly rated High school quarterbacks are coming to be coached by Corey Dennis. I don't think that's good enough. I don't. And it's not that they're being coached by assistant X who has never been a full-time assistant anywhere before and played receiver at Georgia Tech and has been at Ohio State as a GA or quality control guy for five years. I don't care how much he's been around. That's who's running the room. That's who's running the quarterback battle. That's who's managing egos. That's who helping these guys, who's developing these guys. You know who really developed good quarterbacks at Ohio State? Ryan Day. When he was the quarterback's coach. Tom Herman. When he was the quarterback's coach. So this is where we are. So I don't know if anyone else is going to tell you that, but I'll tell you that. I'm going to ask Ryan Day about it when I get a chance to talk to him. So what I want to do now, again, we're not going to go super duper long on this, is I want to go through the plays. And talk about what I thought from the game. Uh, but first, we're going to take a quick... Hey, I heard a Candy Crush ad. I listened uh, to something the other day, and there's a Candy Crush ad. So maybe there'll be one now. We'll be right back on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. Um, I want to read this. I'm, I'm not going to read all the... I sent out the call um, for tech subscribers to send in how they're feeling. And I got like 165 responses, like right away. And we are peeling off a piece off on tech subscribers a little bit um not a gigantic drop off like five percent which i get i get and so i appreciate everybody who's been along on the tech subscriber ride um i did take a day or two off this week to see my family and get some other things back in order um but 
It's one of those things like in season, if you do the tech stuff, like there's a lot of places doing constant Ohio State stuff out of season. This is a way to keep like constant Ohio State stuff in your phone. So it's different, right? If you haven't been along for the whole ride, I mean, I was just looking, I couldn't believe I've been doing it since March. So we started it at a weird time last year. We did it all the way through the stinking summer. So we're going to like figure out ways to like keep texting about Ohio State. So if you have liked it, you know, I appreciate you guys doing it. And I hope you stick around. And if you don't, I understand that too. So anyway, here's what I want to read. Just a taste, a taste of what you guys are feeling. This is from the 614. I'd like your take, especially on the overturned scoop and score. Where I've seen many major media outlets get it wrong is saying it didn't matter because Ohio State forced the punt and went ahead anyway. But football is all about, is all about momentum. That play, the roughing the punter, the targeting call, all killed Ohio State's momentum, which meant as much or more than points. It even hurt when it was supposed to help, such as when they killed a J.K. Dobbins TD run to review Garrett Wilson's catch in the first quarter. To me, that was the story of the game. Momentum killers completely agree. They completely agree with me. Like, I completely agree. And that's why, I, like, I'm going to read you now. I wanted to set up my list of the 10 things that I think if any of these 10... All of these 10 were like went against Ohio State. If any of these 10 go for Ohio State, I think they win. Because they had such momentum early, they lost it, and the fumble that was overturned incorrectly is basically everybody in the world now agrees. There's some dispute. Certainly the Sean Wade targeting call, there's more of a basis of the rule behind it. They got the rule wrong. They got the application of replay wrong. They got everything wrong on the scoop and score. And I 100% believe the point that the texter made about the momentum. And again, maybe you guys have gone over this already. Certainly other people have been faster to podcast about this and get a review up than me. But I'll tell you, man, there are 10 things. Let's just get to them. These are the 10 things, rewatching the game. That I think if any of them go Ohio State's way, none of them went Ohio State's way. If any of them do, Ohio State wins. Number one is the first red zone trip. Some of this is on them. They had two bad play calls, I thought, on the first red zone trip. Um, I actually, I don't know that I'm going to write it. There's too much to write. Uh, You wouldn't believe how much I still have to write. Stuff left over from California. I still have California recruiting. I have this parking lot guy story that I want you guys to read. Um... But I, but I thought on their first red zone, so if they get a touchdown on the first red zone trip, and I, I vehemently in the podcast said they did not lose because they didn't score touchdowns in the red zone. But these were like all opportunities that went against them that weren't exactly their fault. So I thought the first two parts of this were their fault. Ryan Day in the red zone called some bad plays. Again, this is not like I'm not trying to pile on Ryan Day. The world where like Ryan Day was perfect and they were had a perfect record, that is gone now. He made some mistakes. And the thing that I thought, having watched Freddie Kitchen struggle with this offense and calling plays in the red zone, is it's hard to score in the red zone against good teams. And Ohio State, Clemson with Brent Venables, who was great, and I have a Brent Venables point and story I still want to write. Brent Venables did a great job, and that makes it hard. All of a sudden, you look less smart when the other team is good. 
So Ryan Day had more of a leash to look like a genius than Freddie Kitchens. As I've talked about Ryan Day and Freddie Kitchens, so similar, similar age. We're both quarterbacks coaches in the AFC West in 2006, uh, the NFC West in 2016. Freddie Kitchens was in Arizona. Ryan Day was in San Francisco. Lo and behold, they get the two most important jobs in football in the state of Ohio. One goes to the playoff, one gets fired. Freddie Kitchens didn't do a good job. He had a lot of failings. But part of the deal was that he had situations where all of a sudden it looked really hard to score in the red zone. And at times against Clemson, it looked really hard to score in the red zone. And Ryan Day made some mistakes. So I thought when they got in the red zone, I thought they did get the momentum killed by them reviewing the Garrett Wilson call for so much. And you guys, if you rewatched it, they blew the whistle and reviewed the Garrett Wilson catch, which should have been a catch initially. One of the officials on the field initially ruled it a catch. And it should have been a catch right away because he got his hand down. I was yelling in the press box, is your hand your foot? Is your hand your foot? Clearly his hand was the first thing that had touched, and that was inbounds. That made him inbounds. So they should have gotten that right initially, but that, they were going tempo, 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 tempo. And, and delays screw up everybody in every sport. But Ohio State was reliant. They had Clemson on its heels. And I'm not so They would have rather had it be incomplete quick than be complete slow. Because they had a play called to Dobbins. I don't think he would have scored, but he had a big hole on the left side. And it gets whistled dead just as they are running that play. You can see how it's developing. There was a safety there. I don't think he would have scored. But it killed their momentum, and they should have gotten it right. And after the momentum was killed... They had two plays initially that got covered by Clemson. One, they put two tight ends motion from the left side to the right side. Both Ruckert and Farrell motion to the right side. They try to drag the tight end back across the formation, across the middle of the field. Clemson is all over it. Nothing there. Clemson all over it. Maybe Justin Fields could... I, here's No, not Justin. I'm trying to read my notes. This also got Freddie Kitchens in trouble. I thought a lot of times in the red zone, Ryan Day fell into throw on first down, unsuccessful, run on second down, and now it's third and long. And Freddie Kitchens got into that routine all the time. I thought they should have run it on first down more in the red zone. And that momentum, after they rule, after they suck the momentum away and they rule that Garrett Wilson caught it, they should have run it. It's first and goal from the sixth. They should have run it. They should have said, you can't stop us running it. Bang. JK, J do three JKs. Can JK Dobbins get six yards and three carries on first and goal from the sixth? JK, JK, JK. I would have liked to try to see. So they tried to throw on first down. And again, that tight end drag, you're hoping you get the defense all moving one direction. You drag the tight end back across to the other side. You hope it's left open. Clemson wasn't going for it. Run there. Now they run on second down, and they run to the short side of the field. They're trying to block three defenders out there in space with only two blockers. It gets blown up. Doesn't work. So, like, I didn't like either of those play calls. So that's on Ryan Day. Third down, two guys slip. K.J. Hill slips. Chris Olave slips. Both slip. Guys were slipping all over the place. I know they use that field for the Arizona Cardinals. That's on my list. Maybe I'll try to call and say, how can we have a playoff where guys can't stand up? How is this the world? Of all this stuff, this is the world? And I know it's an NFL stadium, but they grow the grass outside, they truck it in, 
and it has a reputation for being slick, and they were falling everywhere. And Chris Olave and KJ Hill both fell on that route. And this is what I thought. I thought maybe in that moment, I think this is the right play. Chris Olave, I think, was looking at Justin Fields as he slipped. And as Justin Fields hesitated, sort of in the pocket, because Chris Olave and KJ Hill both slipped, I think Chris Olave got a look at what Justin Fields looks like as he's sort of maneuvering in the pocket and about to escape because he tried to scramble and then throw to Olave after Olave slipped and then got up. I think that influenced Chris Olave breaking off his route on the last play of the game when Justin Fields threw the interception when the post was open. I think Chris Olave got a good front-facing, he's back looking at the quarterback. If you go back, you guys, all these things, you can go back and rewatch the game and pause me here. I'll pause. Get ready. I'm going to pause. I'm pausing my whole body like, like I'm freezing like a statue. Ready? Pause. So you guys can go find it, rewind the tape, and get to the point, the third down throw. Look at Chris Olave looking at Justin Fields. I think that got in his head. This is what it looks like in this game against this defense, against this defensive coordinator that's really good. You don't have as much time as you usually do. He's going to scramble, be forced to scramble a little more quickly than in the Big Ten. I think Chris Olave got a look at that on this third down play. And it was in his head on the play that kept Ohio State out of the playoff at the end. That's how bad I think this red zone trip was. It wasn't just that they were held to three. It was that it planted a seed for the devastating play at the end. And I'm not blaming Chris Olave for that. It's a different world. Clemson's a different world. We talked about, oh, is their defense really as good as Wisconsin's or Michigan's or Penn State's or whatever? Maybe not, but they got dudes getting after you. They have an excellent defensive coordinator. They have a plan to pressure you. Ohio State did a lot of things they wanted to do, especially in the run game. Like, comprehensively, were they better than these Big Ten defenses? I don't think so, because they couldn't stop the run. But I think Chris Olave got a look at what it looks like when Justin Fields is pressured on that play because he slipped. And then they tried to make a completion, and that influenced late in the game. I don't even know if he would acknowledge that or admit that, but I think a seed was planted. I really, really think that's how bad that was there. So that's number one. The guys slip. KJ Hill and Chris Olave both slip. Justin Fields doesn't have an option. That's the force to uh, kick a field goal. So like... The part of that that's on them is not like the thing that went wrong. The slipping is what went wrong. The other stuff's on them. Okay, that's one. I'll try not to be as long on each thing. Number two is Tough Borland later on is in a passing lane, has a chance at a pick, is in the right spot. They have a great call on Trevor Lawrence. They drop into a zone that he's not ready for. Tough Borland gets his hand on the ball, but he can't catch it. And I think maybe... There's a world where another linebacker catches it. And I'm not trying to rip on Tough Borland. He did a good job to get in the passing lane. But maybe somebody catches that. Maybe somebody catches that. So I thought, like, if, again, if you get that pick, that's not... And again, somebody, that, that's on them, right? But it's like maybe a different linebacker 
makes that pick there. I thought that was huge. Number three, the J.K. run. The long run. So they're up now, but now it's the J.K. long run um, where he's caught from behind by Taylor Muse. And that is a huge deal. And that's a great play by that guy. But because they end up not getting a touchdown there, right? They end up getting another three, and they couldn't convert that. And that was a huge, huge deal. So that's just like a great ankle tackle by that guy in the open field. Takes a swing at him. He's about four yards behind him at the start when he took off after J.K. broke through the hole on the right side. There was enough sort of stuff going on in the secondary where J.K. wasn't able to run in a straight line. He had to try to sort of curve to get around people. Muse is able to run in a straight line. That gives him the chance to catch up to him. Plus, they had leaned on J.K. so much in the first quarter. I, I thought he looked a, maybe a slightly bit tired on that run. And Muse does one of those diving, swinging at his ankles with his arm tackles and makes a, a saving tackle. So, again, that's not like, um, I don't know, Ohio State was kind of in control of that, but it's like a little bit bad luck that the guy's diving ankle tackle works, holds him to three there instead of seven. The next one is the touchdown. And, again, it's like, I'm talking about a lot of red zone stuff. And it feels like, oh, Doug's, I'm, like, like I'm going back on what I said about the red zone. Each of these singularly, it's not the collection of like, well, they didn't score enough. One of them. One of these 10 things goes their way, they win. The touchdown uh, that was originally called a touchdown on the pass to J.K., and then they reviewed it, and clearly the ball had hit the ground as J.K. tried to catch it. He had him. Um, Justin didn't put enough air under it. And I don't know why he didn't, because they really dialed that up right. There was a defensive end trying to chase JK. There was no other defender over there. He could have he could have underhanded that to JK. All you've got to do is get it over that that defensive end and there's no linebacker, there's no safety, there's no corner over there making a play on the ball. He threw it too flat. Now, I mean it's a it's a big game, there's a million things happening, but if he just would have put a little more air on the ball J.K. could have run under it better, and you get a touchdown there instead of three. So that's like another one, right? That's another one. Number five, there's a ball in the back of the end zone that I didn't realize it at the time. Another chance for a touchdown here. This is before the screen that J.K. drops, and the next thing is the screen that J.K. drops, which is probably the worst mistake Ohio State made. But he threw a, a Justin threw a perfect ball to K.J. in the back of the end zone that the ball hit K.J. in the face. Um... And, like, it was there. I, I thought initially that, that Justin had not thrown it perfectly, but it turned out he threw it perfectly. And the ball hit KJ in the face mask, so in the back of the end zone, incomplete. So what are you going to do? The guy, the all-time leading receiver in Ohio State history, has great hands, doesn't make a catch. But that was there for the taking. The J.K. screen drop is just brutal. That's a touchdown. That's a great call. It's all set up. He doesn't catch it. Um, now, the next thing is the... Sean, so that's that's six. Any one of those six happens. They don't slip in the first red zone trip. Tough makes the interception. Muse doesn't chase down JK. Justin puts a little more air on the ball to JK on that swing pass for a touchdown. KJ doesn't let the ball hit his face mask. He catches it in the back of the end zone. Or JK doesn't drop the screen. Any of those, one of those six goes their way. I think they win. 
Seven is the targeting and obviously the targeting. But beyond that, the illegal hands to the face that was on Chase Young that everybody saw that maybe would have been offsetting penalties at least. I guess Sean Wade still ejected there, but it would have been offsetting penalties. The double whammy of that, that it was the Wade ejection plus a 15-yard penalty on third down. At least if it was offsetting penalties, you would have made him do third down again instead of giving him a first down. They were dead at that point. That's why I thought that was such a big deal. They were dead. Clemson had nothing going. Nothing going. So, like, we, I'm not going to spend all my, this time on the targeting call right now because it was obvious. But that's, I just want to, you know, again, if if maybe they call offsetting penalties but Wade's still ejected or they call the 15-yarder and that stands but, they, but somehow Wade isn't ejected, um, the double whammy of it, losing the yardage, giving Clemson the first down, and then losing Wade for the game was, was so huge. Um, all right, here's where I think now we're in territory where this is a little less obvious but huge. All right, so this is, I think, the underrated play of the game. It's a third down late in the first half. J.K. gets blown up on, misses the hole, gets tackled for a loss on first down. This is after the ATN touchdown for Clemson. Second down, uh, they throw it out. They drop eight. Um, only five guys in the pattern for Ohio State. Um, Clemson drops eight. Justin buys some time. He finds Garrett Wilson on the sideline. Garrett Wilson makes a nice catch, but it's a yard short of the first down. If somehow Garrett Wilson could have somehow gotten a first down there, and it would have been really hard to do so, changes the game. Third and one, Josh Myers and Jonah Jackson are both zone blocking. There's a linebacker that has to get taken care of. There's a defensive lineman that has to get taken care of. They both end up letting a guy through. It's a good plan by Clemson. But Myers and Jackson both let guys through, and J.K. on third and short gets blown up in the backfield. Blown up. And he hurts his ankle. And that was so huge. It costs them a drive later in the second half because J.K. is out, Master Teague is in, and I think they had to punt on a drive because they couldn't get their run game going. I think they got away from their run game in the second half because J.K.'s ankle was hurting. This is the play where he hurts his ankle, and it's a play call again. Like, it wasn't a great play call. They missed the, they missed a couple blocks, and all of a sudden, the guy who's been your best offensive player in the first half hurts his ankle. Like, again, it's like a compounding play. It was a third down they didn't get, plus J.K. Dobbins got hurt. Just like they, they had a third down where they didn't stop Clemson because they got a penalty called, and Sean Wig got ejected. They had these compounding moments. So that's eight for me. Nine is the punt block try which is that's aggressive Ryan Day. It was probably overly aggressive there. He's a th- Here's the thing I didn't like about the punt block thing. Ryan Day said, we've done that before. We never hit the quarterback. He had Cam Brown and Chris Olave going after that. I need to go back and look. I'm not sure how often Cam Brown has been out there on the edge of doing that. Cam Brown came in and rushed the punter. He didn't even put his hands out to try to block it. He ran at the punter and did not extend his arms. Chris Olave put his arms out to block it. Cam Brown was out of control. Now, he's young. He's put in a tough spot. But Ryan Day can't act like, well, we've done that a million times before. We've been aggressive on that, and we never ran into the punter before. He's asking a young guy in that spot to come in completely under control in a high-pressure, high-intensity situation. So it's not a shock that in that situation, a young guy like Cam Brown, Chris Olave, who's been out there on punt blocks and has successfully punt, blocked punts before, 
he didn't. He sort of knew what to do. Cam Brown didn't. It was a big risk by by Ryan Day. You die by the risk. You live by the risk. Right? They went for it on fourth down later in the game and threw a touchdown. Go ahead, touchdown pass to Chris Olave. Ryan Day is aggressive, but I thought they could have been aggressive, smarter, or realize what their situation is and realize who they're asking things of in that moment. That was nine tenths the fumble. Right. Those are the 10 things. Any one of those goes their way, they win. That's my belief. One of those 10. It's not a collection of red zone failures. If they get one touchdown out of the three, excuse me, out of the three, they win. And as the, the, the question was asked, it's not just about scoreboard and yardage and punt. It's about momentum. It's about how you feel. It's about seizing more momentum early. It's about getting momentum back late. It's about taking momentum opportunities away from Clemson at various situations. So that's how close I thought. They go one for 10, they win. Now, there are a bunch of things in there. Maybe I'll save it for the podcast midweek. They did it to themselves on a couple plays. One is... The eraser. The eraser really played big here because the eraser is what they call Jordan Fuller. And Jordan Fuller has helped them not give up big plays all year. And in this situation where they are playing two safeties more often, which we talked about a million times on the pod, we wanted Jordan Fuller and Josh Proctor out there as safeties. The first Clemson touchdown, the Trevor Lawrence touchdown, they have four wide receivers wide. And I think also this is where you're seeing some maybe some Sean Wade influence. But also they've, got, they've probably got to have a better plan here. And they switched the plan later and they got burned the opposite way. So here's my point on this. The two times, the two Clemson long plays, the Trevor Lawrence draw for the touchdown and the Travis Etienne screen for the touchdown, the eraser got wiped out. Once by Ohio State themselves, once by a great block. On the Lawrence draw... They, Clemson has four wide, and Ohio State is up playing man coverage with four corners. Not corners, but because one of them is Jordan Fuller. But they're playing it with Arnett, Okuda, Reap, and Fuller. And the one deep safety is Josh Proctor, who is young, who is not an eraser. Not yet. He's going to be the starting deep safety next year. He's not an eraser yet. Trevor Lawrence gets to the second level. Boom. Gets around him. He's gone. Watch the Trevor Lawrence run on their final scoring drive in the fourth quarter. Trevor Lawrence runs a draw, and Jordan Fuller tackles him about 12 yards downfield. It's a very similar play. And if Jordan Fuller doesn't get Trevor Lawrence there, that goes for a lot longer. Jordan Fuller got him. If they have Jordan Fuller deep instead of Josh Proctor deep there, I don't think Trevor Lawrence runs 60-whatever yards for a touchdown on a draw. They had a senior deep safety who erased mistakes all year and they had him up playing man coverage on a receiver. And they had a young guy, a second year guy, as the last line of defense. That was their choice and it burned them. The screen, the center, the center. They executed that screen so well, the center blocked Jordan Fuller. 25 yards down the field. So that was good on Clemson. Jordan Fuller couldn't stop that big play because he had a lineman in his face 25 yards down the field. The first play, 
the defensive design took away Jordan Fuller's opportunity to stop that big play. So, late in the game, on the last drive, they flip them. We had talked about, Halfley had talked about, guys had talked about before, Jordan Fuller has the ability to come up and play run coverage in the box, like a linebacker. But now you have Proctor as your deep safety. They get burned by it. What do they do? Late in the game, they flip it. Jordan Fuller's now the deep safety. Josh Proctor is in the box like a linebacker. They drop into zone coverage. And Josh Proctor looks like he gets a little lost in his coverage area. Or he doesn't. Maybe it's just bad design. But Josh Proctor, Amari Rogers works in the area where Josh Proctor is. Makes the catch. Runs 38 yards. Because now... Jordan Fuller isn't up in coverage. He's the deep safety, but Proctor is up and he's there. Proctor did some good things. He also, they they were moving him around because they figured out we want to have Jordan Fuller deep. All the stuff we talked about, put Proctor and Fuller deep, put Proctor and Fuller deep, play two safeties. Turns out maybe doing something against Clemson that you barely have done. They've done situationally all year and we were all for it. And man, when we're wrong, we admit it. You ended up putting a guy in a position who he hadn't been in that position much, and he got burned multiple times in the biggest game of the year. Does that mean you should have played more two safety looks against Maryland? I don't know. Maybe. Because they weren't ready for it there. So as as talented as they are, and people have brought this up, I don't know what that would have looked like. Because you had two safeties transfer. Two veteran safeties. Two former starting safeties, Isaiah Pryor and Brendan White. Two former starting safeties transfer. You end up putting a young guy in a tough spot against the defending national champion. And it burned you. So what's the better solution to that? Well, don't put the young guy in the tough spot, obviously. But how would they have avoided that? What do you do to keep Isaiah Pryor or Brendan White on the roster? I don't know that they bungled that or whatever. You know, like this is the way they decided to play defense. We praised him a lot for having this plan. It's Ryan Day's plan. He made that very clear. He wants three corners and a single high safety. <clears throat> You've got to have the right personnel to do it. And I think we saw some of that lack of experience. I think Josh Proctor probably overall upside is a better player than Brendan White and Isaiah Pryor. But he doesn't have more experience. So that was tough. A couple other things, and we'll talk, I mean, again, we'll get to this midweek. I did not think the defensive end, other than Chase Young, got very much pressure. Robert Landers and Davon Hamilton made some plays. Robert Landers blew through the interior Clemson line and into the backfield a couple times. Really made a play. Davon Hamilton got a sack when Chase Young flushed Lawrence and Hamilton. There was some coverage stuff, and Hamilton eventually got through. It wasn't great pressure um, off the snap. A lot of the other defensive ends, Zach Harrison made a good play on the zone read at one point. Tyreek Smith was in there on one play. They did not get other consistent pressure from the defensive ends. So I know a lot of people are like all in on the depth. They've got to see more from those defensive ends. Because if you just watch it, I was really, I tried to watch Chase Young every snap. They singled him sometimes. He didn't get the Lawrence a ton. There were a couple plays. They were doing a pretty good job of pushing him back behind Trevor Lawrence, and Trevor Lawrence would step up. There were times when he got as deep, he got to Trevor Lawrence's spot in the pocket, but he was a yard behind him, and Lawrence stepped up. They 
drilled that. And that's normal. You do that. You set the depth of your pocket and you you match that with how you're going to pass block. And they did a really good job on that. There were times, if you look on the uh, the fumble that should have been a fumble that was overruled, Chase Young almost swats the ball out of Trevor Lawrence's hand on the throw. But again, he like gets pushed past him a little bit. So Chase Young, you'd love to see a little more bend on that pass rush to be able to to, so you're not circling behind the quarterback. They did. A, they couldn't stop him, but they pushed him wide. Other times, they got the ball out quickly. Trevor Lawrence ran away from Chase Young practically every time he ran. He ran away from Chase Young, obviously on purpose. So I thought Chase Young like did a pretty good job. There were when they when they did single him up, their plan was pushing past the quarterback. But I it didn't feel. I mean, it's it's not even close. The impact of how often is Chase Young affecting the play versus how often was the opposite defensive end affecting the play? I mean, it's 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 ten to one. I mean, overall for the game, it might be like twenty five to two and a half, you know, but it's ten to one. So that's what they've got to make up for next year. And like they're good, talented guys. They've got to come. They've got to come because it's not there. It wasn't there against Clemson. Not on a, not on a, hey, if we don't, you know, everybody loves to write, oh, if you, if you, if you double team Chase Young, all these other guys are going to get you. They didn't really get you. I didn't think they really got you. So that was an issue. And then uh, uh, one other thing I just want to talk about that Travis Etienne, awesome, awesome run. This is the reality, right? On that play, he runs wide. He stiff arms Jordan Fuller. They had one, two, three, four, six guys out there with a shot at him. This is a really talented team. Recruits great. Super talented. These were the six Buckeyes with a shot at Travis Etienne. On his, like, really hardcore touchdown. Jordan Fuller, Tyler Friday, Malik Harrison, Tuff Borland, Amir Reap, and Pete Werner. Now, it's Amir Reap because he's in for Sean Wade. Malik Harrison's really good. But otherwise, you have some very good players out there. That's six guys. None of them are All-Americans. Malik Harrison's really good. But, you know, it's, it's hard. Like, Okuda got him in the end zone. Okuda didn't have a shot. They ran away from Chase, Right? Um, which is why Sean Wade coming back is a big deal because singular guys make a big difference. Those are good defenders chasing him. Those are not like six all-world guys tra- trying to trace down, uh, chase down Travis Etienne. And that's on a really good defense. That's on a defense that people think is one of the best in the country. But that's just the reality, right? You don't have All-Americans everywhere. So I thought... Brent Venables did a good job in the second half. They ran some twists and some stunts and stuff with their linemen that made it uh, uh, clogged it up a little more, I thought, for J.K. Um, Justin Fields, as much as the Ohio State had opportunities, Justin Fields threw two picks. The last pick wasn't his fault. Um, He did throw one pick that was his fault on a great play by Isaiah Simmons, and he had two more. He had a pick six that the guy dropped, that, that the safety broke on him, and Justin hesitated half a second before he released it. Safety broke, hit him in the chest. And the other one on a sideline route, the guy read the whole way and, again, hit him hit him in the chest. Uh, so Justin could have thrown a lot more 
a lot more picks than he did. The last one's not his fault. And it comes down to, you know, someone from someone a film guy had put up like, oh, look how open this Olave route was. As fi- yeah, I thought everybody knew that. It was a touchdown. It's a game-winning touchdown. If he doesn't break off the route, it's a game-winning touchdown. The nicest, most humble, quietest, hardest-working kid you'll ever want to find. Um, if he runs his route to completion, Ohio State's playing LSU. I think LSU's going to be Clemson. I think Clemson's good. I don't think they're great. I think Ohio State would have given LSU a really good game. And so we'll bury this. I want to, I want to get Stephen and Nathan and sort of their big picture takes on this. We can break down some other stuff individually. Um, we have your thoughts. I want, you know, we'll go through all your thoughts and all the emotion of this. Um, but there's a lot of football stuff in there too. I'll do some of the more football stuff I have. I have a little more. I made a lot of notes. They had a lot of chances. They were better. It's like I'm trying to point out the things Ohio State did wrong. They were the better team. I, I, I don't think there's any question about that. I thought Clemson overall in the end, I thought Ohio State outcoached them clearly early. Um, the idea to make Trevor Lawrence a runner and even up the numbers was genius by Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott, their offensive coordinators. That was great. And Venables made some adjustments that made it harder on Ohio State's offense in the second half. But I think if J.K. hadn't hurt his ankle on that hidden huge play of the game, um, I think that would have made a big difference too. So I hope to, I hope we'll get a chance to talk with Ryan Day about all this stuff. Um, I understand why you guys are upset. Um, and we'll try to bury this thing this week and then move on with depth chart stuff going forward. So if you're doing the texts, keep those up um, or not. It's up to you guys. But I want to be most of all grateful and thankful to everybody who did do the text and who who listened. Everybody who listened all the way through on this. Again, sorry on this. I'm trying to think. So I didn't do my. I didn't make myself do it Wednesday last week, which is our normal day for midweek because it was New Year's Day. Thursday was Jimmy Haslam Brown's news conference, and so I had to go up and ask Jimmy Haslam questions. Friday, I finally got to rewatch the game. So it was like Friday, I was like, I'm going to rewatch the game and do the podcast. But it like took me a long time to rewatch the game with all the notes that I was taking. Um, and then Saturday, uh, I had family plans. And so once I didn't get the podcast done Friday, because it took me too long to watch it, I couldn't do it Saturday. And now it's like the middle of the night, Sunday night, Monday morning, and I'm finally getting to it. So thanks to you guys. Make sure you're reading Steven and Nathan and me. Uh, we'll start doing some more basketball stuff on the podcast, too. They're losing some games, but they're still good. Recruiting stuff. Um, lots of stuff, as usual. I'm a little I'm a little scattered right now. It's like it's just, uh, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, actually. I shouldn't have waited this long to do it, but it, my, I got stuff going on, man. It's weird. It's like you're so, um, there's still a lot going on, but like, and just for all you guys, I mean, like, when we all just are live and breathe this every week, every week. And so when it's over, it's like um, you're getting like, it's like, oh, it's like sort of back to, quote, normal life a little bit. And so it's like now it's like, okay, now we got to get back to doing some more football stuff. So I'm really babbling. Nathan and Steven will be back. We'll do a Wednesday podcast and get it up Wednesday. Always appreciate you guys listening. I'm Doug Maurice for Cleveland.com, and that was Buckeye Talk.